it is a profession. If, if, if you want a, a life whereby it's quite routine, you sort of know what you're going to do each moment of every day, in some it's not really the place to be. If you want something where you are constantly challenged and stimulated and actually are pushing your boundaries on quite a regular basis, insults is a great place. Hello everyone and welcome to the Student Lawyer podcast series. Whether you're at school, sixth form, university, thinking about a career in law or exploring law careers, you're in the right place. We are the one-stop shop for student lawyers. If you'd like to join The Student Lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com. This episode is sponsored by the University of Law. The University of Law offers a range of undergraduate and postgraduate courses and master's degrees alongside an award-winning pro bono clinic so you can build up your legal experience while studying. And their experienced career service will enable you to put your best foot forward when launching your legal career. The courses are employment focused and based on real legal practice so you'll be better prepared for the workplace. Part-time and online study options are available so you can work and study at the same time. Click the link in the description box of the podcast to find out more about the courses on offer. Hello everyone, welcome to the Student Lawyer Podcast. My name is Stephanie, I'm a future trainee solicitor and the host of today's episode. Joining me today is Kevin Hellard, partner and offshore delivery leader and UK insolvency and asset recovery practice leader at Grant Thornton UK. During the episode, Kevin explains in detail the role of an insolvency and asset recovery practitioner, the types of cases that the practitioners are assigned, and the onshore and offshore jurisdictions they operate in. Specifically, Kevin discusses Grant Thornton's unique forensic accounting assignment, which involves a review of the source of the Church of England's assets that formed part of Queen Anne's Bounties investments. He also talks about the investigation into Paolo Maluf, the ex-mayor of Sao Paulo, who was involved in endemic corruption. Kevin also explains how insolvency and asset recovery practitioners work together with solicitors and barristers, the opportunities available for students and graduates at Grant Thornton, and reveals the top qualities of a Grant Thornton trainee. This is a particularly valuable and insightful episode for business students and law students interested in an alternative career to that of a solicitor and barrister. So without further ado, welcome to the Student Lawyer, Kevin. It is just wonderful to have you here with us today. Thank you, Stephanie. It's great to be here. Well, get, well crack on with the questions because I have a lot to ask you. A uh, very impressive career and highlights. So very excited to... Um, yeah get just stuck in um I'm just going to give the listeners just a brief overview of your role at Grant Thornton um so you're a partner offshore delivery leader and UK insolvency and asset recovery practice leader and described as and I quote a standout name in the onshore asset recovery market and a legend and a hugely effective expert now Obviously, it's a very impressive career, and we're going to talk quite extensively about your work in the field. But before we do, I thought we could backtrack just a little bit and talk about just a little bit about your education and early career. So I have read that uh, you preferred sport over studying uh, and considered college as a way of filling time until obtaining a driving license, which you could which would then lead to a job of some sort. Um, so I, uh, I just wanted to ask, what led you to study law at university and consequently a career in insolvency and asset recovery? Oh, that's a good question, Stephanie. It all takes me back to dim and distant memories uh, from my point of view. And um, I suppose, I mean, you're right. I don't know where you did your research, but uh, <laughs> you're right in the fact that I think when I first went to college I actually went to college where you did year A levels rather than two and the original aim was just to fill in time to become 17 get a driving license get a job especially a job that came with a car that was my aspiration the, 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 the extent of my aspiration 
Um, it's a recollection. It was a, um, a law professor actually at the college, at the technical college I went to, who suggested I, I should read law. Um, and um, and, I, and I, to be honest, I didn't take it that seriously, to be frank. Um, and I think that's probably explained by the fact that colleges I applied for all were at the start of the alphabet. Um, but um, but basically, he, he encouraged me to do that. And, uh, and whilst I hadn't really expected to get a place, I got a place to read law. And I think at that point, because there weren't that many people in, in, in the people I associated with who had that opportunity, I felt that it was too big an opportunity not to take up. It, it certainly wasn't a plan of mine to do it, but because I had the place, I, I, I felt I, I ought not turn it down. So, uh, so that led me to go to Cardiff University, um, and um, noting begins at an early, an early letter in the alphabet. I uh, went to Cardiff University um, and um, graduated and passed uh, my uh, law degree, passed my law study final exams as well. Um, but um, I had a year out then until my training contract was to start, which is the usual obviously way into uh, to, to, to being a solicitor. Um, it was during the recession, it was the early 90s. Um, and so, I, I, interestingly, I found it quite difficult at the time to get a job for that year because nobody would really take me seriously because I completed my law side finals. So I was obviously killing a year. Um, but insolvency um, was um, was a great opportunity, really, because of recession. They, they wanted people. And uh, so I ended up um, thinking this would be an interesting way of spending a year. And so I took a role um, within the insolvency business. And it's, it's quite an interesting thing, really, because I've, I've, I've realised throughout my career is very few people intend to get a job in insolvency. Uh, most people go into accounts do something else and then find their way into the department. But like many of the people who do find their way into insolvency, you find the work extremely stimulating and, uh, and sort of challenging. And in the end, in my case, I ended up passing up um, the opportunity to do a training contract instead qualifying as an insolvency practitioner. And that was 30-odd years ago, well, 30, yeah, 30, 31 years ago. I think that's really interesting. I mean, it shows, um, it sounds like you were very open to opportunities, you know, uh, speaking to your law professor going for um, this, you know, degree, you knew it was too good of an opportunity to pass up. But then also after, after investing so much time in a law degree, you know, that takes time and is really hard to see these other opportunities in front of you and kind of like know that that was the right decision for you. So, um, yeah, I think that is just open-minded, open to opportunities at its finest, and it's clearly paid off. So um, great advice there. So thank you for sharing that. For the past four years, I have been very lucky in the sense that I have had the shoulders of friends and family to sob on and unfortunately for them to vent at whilst I have been under pressure and stress from university deadlines and whilst going through the gruelling process of training contract applications and interviews. They have been my unofficial therapists and during tough times have reminded me that there is always light at the end of the tunnel. But it's not always possible to rely on a friend or family member to help you through difficult times, especially if they are not trained therapists. And sometimes speaking to somebody outside of your family or friendship circle is a better option anyway. If you're going through stressful times, looking to improve the quality of your life, vent or need somebody to remove the weight of the world from your shoulders, BetterHelp, the sponsor of today's podcast, may be right for you. BetterHelp is the largest therapy platform in the world and it changes the way people approach their mental health and helps them tackle life's challenges by providing accessible and affordable care. The therapists at BetterHelp are qualified to help you through everything from daily stresses to anxiety, relationships, depression, addictions, eating, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflicts, grief, self-esteem and much more. After you sign up, BetterHelp will match you to a therapist who fits your objectives, preferences and the type of issues that you are dealing with. So whilst a friend or family member, aka an unofficial therapist, is great to speak to, therapists on BetterHelp include psychologists, 
family therapists, licensed clinical social workers and licensed professional counsellors. Visit www.betterhelp.com forward slash TSL for 10% off your first month. That's www.betterhelp.com forward slash TSL for 10% off of your first month. I know that I'm looking forward to using BetterHelp to help me get through the SQE when I start it next year. So how have your interests or experiences outside, um, outside of the office contributed to the success of your career at Grant Thornton, do you think? Um, that's a good question. I, I suppose if I, if I look back on my career, and I think this is something you learn as you develop through a career or whatever, and certainly I am somebody who sort of suffers, or suffers might be the wrong word, but somebody who um, accepts he has what you might call the imposter syndrome. Um, I'm, you know, it, it may be it's because I come from, I, I'm, I'm, come from a family that has no real background in the professions at all uh maybe it's because i qualified in law and and now having a career in accounting practice um but certainly i've spent a lot of my time you know really believing that people around me are far better able than suited to do the job that i'm doing um and and um it sort of led i think to the fact that on the face of it you you, you start off to a situation whereby you probably just work harder and that's the easy way of you know, I had to work harder at university because, you know, that, that really didn't come naturally to me. But, but you just work harder to make up for things that, that come more naturally to others. Um, but also, I think one of my learnings in my career is that you also find ways to differentiate. And this ties back to your question. Having gone for quite a long time where I felt I had to strive to be like others, um, i.e. the imposter syndrome, I guess, you then, you then began to realise there were certain things that I could do and certain things that actually came naturally to me, um, which I realised didn't come naturally to others. And, and, and that's probably because of a slightly different background. Um, I had different ways of looking at problems. I just approached things slightly differently. And I think it's really, I mean, it's a really sort of good time culturally to talk about at the moment because there's a really big emphasis on making sure that we increase the diversity of business and all that sort of thing because it's really really important to get so many different thoughts and views on problem solving or into professions and, and, and things like that and, and i think for me it took me quite a long time to actually realize the areas that yeah, the areas that enabled me to succeed or to carry on progressing and parts of my character, parts of my psyche, um, things I found quite natural, actually were a skill. But because I didn't learn them or I didn't pass an exam, I, I never really gave myself that probability of being a skill. I think that's really important for people who are in, a, in any stage of their career to actually suddenly realise that elements of the ways you are, which is differential. And, and, and gives you an edge or gives you just a different place. I'm trying to think by way of explanation. By way of explanation, I think I, I notice what people say, I've got quite a sort of um, a fine commercial edge. I'm, I'm quite commercially savvy. Well, now, I haven't learned that necessarily. I suppose I, I picked that up by being in an environment the way it was. And, and because it, it was never something that I felt was was abuse effectively. In insolvency, it's a commercial business, so you never, you never realise the value of it. But, but as you increase in, in your career, you suddenly realise that actually you see things in a different way to others. I think it's really important to recognise that and to realise the value of that. And I think I, a lot of the area, a lot of the reasons, and I can do insolvency, I pass the exams, etc., etc. But I lead the business because I, I have characteristics about me, which I think came from my background, not necessarily from the process. And I, and I think if I've learned anything, if I have my time again, it's to be more uh, sensitive to those sorts of cultural strength, uh, emotional strengths that actually don't, you don't give credit to. That makes a lot of sense. You know, I think that um, imposter syndrome is a talked about thing and um i understand that many people i don't know if suffer again is the right word but you know have uh, aspects of it um 
And I always try to stress, I hope I take this advice myself when I start my training contract, but law firms and, you know, accountancy firms, all these positions that um, people are fighting over, the company has hired the trainee for a reason. You know, they want that trainee's unique um, self. So, you you know, uh, they've hired them for a reason. It's to bring that person in. They want their thoughts and opinions. But it is kind of, I can imagine it's difficult to balance, you know, being the best of the best or being part of the best of the best, hitting the criteria that whatever, you know, said firm is looking for, but then also bringing your unique self in as well. But um, at the end of the day, it's all kind of, it's all the commercial businesses, all practical. So I think that each person going and, and working with the firm, every trainee, lives in the real world, has experienced the real world and has experienced commercial problems and issues. So they are well-versed, I think, to contribute. So yeah, I don't know if that, that's what you were, were saying, but... Yeah, well, I think also, I think now we're in a different cult, you know, culture has developed and, um, and we're in a culture now, certainly speaking as a, a large employer and somebody brings people through, where actually you're, you're actually seeking to, to find that sort of level of diversity, to find those different thoughts in different ways. If I roll back 10, 15 years, you had a more clone-like way of approaching things. And you're right, because when you go through university, when you go through college, when you go through exams, there's a very linear way in which you actually mark people. Um, and I think um, that that had historically thrown, you know, thrown, followed through into, into employment. Whereas now, I think that there is recognition and I think people should be very, very keen to bring their sort of whole self to work and to, and, and to be able to be able to be open about the environment in which they they came up because they, of course, don't realise themselves, but there's some real good advantages from those types of things. It took me an awful long time to realise I had some real benefits. And I probably looked at my father and, and, and I got a lot from him, but, you know, he was a professional man. You know, you, you wouldn't necessarily thought I did. And... Uh, and I, you know, I through my interview process, I was always being asked, "What did your father do?" Because people were looking to, you know, is he a judge? Is he a banker? Or whatever. Whereas actually, you know, there's a lot much wider ambit of, uh, of skills and experiences. You know, and, and uh, it's interesting. Insolvency is like a wide thing, but because insolvency and the way the business has developed or did develop, quite often, you know, in more rudimentary cases, you, you trade businesses and you get involved in businesses. And you meet talented people and you recruit from businesses. So, so in insolvency, you always had a very mixed match of people. Um, and, 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 I, and I think that's one of the reasons I really sort of find it was a great environment to be in. You have engineers there and you have you know, scientists or you have people who are just uh, guys that worked hard. And, and you thought, actually, I wouldn't mind that person. I wouldn't tell them to join us. So, so you had a real mixed match of, um, of people in the business who come in for a whole, like I said before, I said at the start, Nobody sets out, you know, at all to be an astronaut or an insolvency practitioner. You know, you fall into it. It's a really dynamic area to work in. But you have a, a very wide plethora of people that you work with. I think that's one of the, one of the great areas about it. Absolutely. Um, thank you for sharing that because I think that's going to really help a lot of people. Um, so I was wondering if you could please introduce Grant Thornton UK um, and perhaps give an insight into, for, for the people that don't know, what services uh, the firm provides, what sectors it operates in, and who, for example, are some of uh, Grant Thornton's kind of clients? I suppose this should be the easy question, isn't it? I should better roll this one off. But um, um, I suppose the start, what is Grant Thornton? Uh, Grant Thornton is a global accountancy practice. Um, so it's one of the largest global accountancy practices. It depends how you count fifth, sixth, whichever, whichever way in which you count things. But broadly speaking, you've got a big four. And the big four, I suppose, if you look in legal parlance, you talk about the magic circle. The big four are the magic circle. Um, you then have five, six, seven, eight. Um, if you talk again in, in, part, in sort of magic, in, in legal parlance, the difference between the big four in accountancy and the five, six, seven, eight is very substantial. It, 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 it's not a little drop, it's a big drop. In fact, I don't know what the most recent studies are, but if you merge sort of five, six, seven, eight, nine together, you wouldn't get a big four. 
you know, so, so there is there, there are two different sort of segments, if you like, in those businesses. Um, albeit, you'll find the bigger of the um, of the, um, the the companies outside of the big four will still have a global footprint uh, and, and will still have the, the, the sort of the, 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 the provision, the, 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 the service offerings, but just on a on a smaller scale in relation to how many people they have in the business. So, so we have ground forms, and we have offices in more countries than McDonald's have outlets. So, so it's a, it's a very much a global business. The business varies from country to country, but in the UK, which is obviously where we're talking about, in the UK, um, we obviously carry all the tax. Grant forms is a statutory auditor. That's that's what people perhaps know it to be. Um, but in the UK, we also have a very very substantial advisory practice. In fact, it's probably bigger than all the tax practice. And so what does the advisory practice do? And this is probably sort of the, the, the wider bits you were talking about earlier, the wider plethora of services. It's quite difficult. I mean, it, it sort of does everything. But trying to, if you try and look at that in the context of a business, we help businesses start up. We help businesses grow. We help them fundraise. We help them do acquisitions. We help them sell. Uh, we help manage the wealth implications of that for the individual the individual owners. We now slide to my side of the business. We help them fail. We, we, we deal with with businesses in the cycle where they come to the end of the cycle from, from a fail point of view. And then you have some sort of complementary services around that, which will be things like consulting to help them perform better, um, people, you know, to help the culture. Anything around the way in which you, you you make a business perform better is areas that we can provide within the grand forms and advisory branches. And then I guess the one thing that stands out on the side of that would then be the ability to carry out detailed financial investigations. So if a business that has some trouble, if there's some difficulties, something's happened that shouldn't have happened, then you have the financial ability to deal with the investigation side, understand what's happened. Um, and there's, there's a whole other area which then spoke over that in relation to regulatory compliance and all that sort of thing. But broadly speaking, every service around any business of any size uh, at, at any stage of its cycle is sort of what it does in the advisory practice. Um, and, and my side of that, and the bit we're talking about, is obviously the insolvency side, which also covers restructuring, which covers you know, sort of business in difficulty that needs to be hived down to be helped to move forward. Or a business has completely failed and creditors have concerns about what's happened and they want us to investigate it. So, so there's the two elements. I think that gives you a bit of a feel. I mean, it's almost so broad it's hard to get hold of. But I mean, there is a massive breadth of service offerings in the business. Um, and, um, um, and that's the same really in all the, the, the sort of major, major accounting practices. It is very, very broad, as you said. Um, I, I've always thought that the investigating part sounds so interesting. I guess that's my nosy personality shining through a little bit there. But yeah, like just really understanding what exactly has gone on just sounds fascinating to me. But I must ask, like, who are some of the clients as well? If, uh, who is a typical client? The client, I'll do more in a context really. Yeah. Going back to what I said in relation to the fact that the big four are much bigger. So so Grand Thornton will always try not to be the master of everything, but to be good at what it wants to be good at and, and be sort of market leading in those sorts of areas. So for instance, um, in relation to um, the audit tax practice and, and, and a lot of our transactional work which comes from those we're very good in the sort of what i call senior mid-market so therefore mid-market companies going through growth going to the next stages and we'll have multiple clients in those sectors um, then you'll have situations where areas we, we specialize in so we specialize in financial services so we'll be dealing with all the big names of financial service companies um, the household names in, in relation to the system in relation to their regulatory sort of obligations or advisory areas to, to multiple areas. So, so the advisory businesses tend to operate in much bigger companies often. Uh, the audit tax practice operates and therefore the transaction work we do with extensive company or tax clients tends to be in sort of what I call the senior mid market, large mid market. 
Um, but, but basically, yeah, the, um, multiple, uh, yeah, yeah, multiple sort of companies that are actually household names from that point of view, um, but in all areas of, of, of their sort of cycle. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, that takes us quite nicely on to my next guess, uh, next question, I suppose. So I understand that Grant Thornton undertook a unique forensic accounting assignment to review the source of assets that form part of Queen Anne's bounties investments in the South Sea Company in the early 18th century, which coincided with the expansion of transatlantic uh, chattel slavery gosh that was a long sentence <laughs> um, please can you explain first of all the background and facts of the case secondly how Grant Thornton undertook a unique forensic account um, and thirdly what the outcome was well as I say you said before that um, you are nosy by nature this would certainly be a matter that you'd quite you know, happily get involved with. I read this on the the FT. Um, it was like it was just fascinating. So I thought I have to ask you about it. Yes, it's a matter. I, I mean, I, I deal very much with the investigative side of insolvency. We work very closely with our forensic colleagues uh, and investigations, and this is a matter dealt with within the financial investigation side of forensics. I mean, the Church of England is is a, is a historically significant organisation in this country. You know, it's shaped. You know, the society we live in today, really. So it has a, a massive impact. And the client, from our point of view, I think we can't talk about it, but openly, so it's been the FT, but the client, from our point of view, was the Church Commissioners of England. So the Church Commissioners of England um, are the financial arm of the Church of England, and they manage a £10 billion endowment fund. And the income from that endowment fund is what's used to run the costs of running the Church of England. So, of course, the 10 billion fund has at its origin the Queen's Anne Bounty, which is what you discussed earlier on. The Queen's Anne Bounty was a fund that was set up by Queen Anne in 1704, which, of course, was at the height of the slave trade. So, given that the, um, given that the Church of England, well, the Church of England, the following mission of the Church of England is, it is sort of you know, healing, reconciliation, all that, it, it, that type of the, and, and, and the recognition, obviously, that the trade, the slave trade, had been slaves for African people, which contributed very heavily to sort of you know, racial and class issues that are still seen today. Um, they, the, the Church Commission has decided that they want to try and carry out an exercise to try and establish to what extent um, this 10 billion fund they held may have come from origins. Of or from institutions that were involved in the slave trade, sort of back in the early 1700s. And, and as you're right to say, the Commission has asked Grant Thornton to look into this, which is, you know, we, we, we do complex investigations, but this is quite a, a different thing. Very, very enjoyable. I don't know the team who did the case, very enjoyable, very stimulating for all the reasons I think you said earlier on, definitely about your, your own sort of passion for. for for, for sort of digging through things, but um, so so in order to do the case, um, which is very similar to doing any sort of investigation, really, um, we had to review contemporaneous documents. And interestingly, the church has a vast collection of documents. In fact, I'm told um, five thousand kilometres of them. Um, so, um, so there's a lot of records to look at. And within those documents, they had handwritten financial ledgers coming back from the Queensland Bounty from about the early 1700s. That's insane, going through all of those things. It was the mid-19th century. So, so all the records are there. But the issues was, of course, and some of the issues, obviously, you know, it's quite interesting. People of my era are quite used to looking at handwritten records, but actually not often nowadays we come across handwritten records. Um, and uh, but also in this case, um, we had to create bespoke accounting software to deal with the transactional work because it's all in sort of pounds, shilling, and old pence, which um, I don't remember. In fairness, so I <laughs> so you clearly won't remember. But um, it operates in different uh, different. You know, there aren't sort of a um, hundred in the pound, etc. It's a very different system, and of course, none of the software that's currently available can deal with that sort of system. 
So we have to review 12,000 transactions um, to find the origins of the transactions, ascertain the nature of what was invested, what the linkage to those companies was to potential slave trades, and then with a view and find findings for the church commissioners in order to see if we can try and estimate the extent to, in, in, in current days money, what their what their dowry um, what their dowry sort of related to. Now the results are actually public. I think they've actually been they've, they've been um, uh, displayed publicly anyway. But more importantly, I guess, than the results of the investigation, as a result of the investigation, the church commissioners now set up a hundred million fund in order to sort of promote sort of better and fairer futures for everybody. Which is then a process they're doing within the endowment fund to, to, to sort of reinvest, if you like, and, um, and 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 to recognise the fact that you know there is a, a historic uh, uh, connection between the funds they've got and funds that have been derived from either businesses or individuals that have had connections to the slave trade. I just think it's such a fascinating case um, to have the opportunity to work on. So. Um, yeah, some really interesting work that you guys are involved in. Um, and I'll put a link in the show notes to the article that I'd referred to and maybe something about the outcome as well, because um, I do think it's a really interesting one for um, for student lawyers and um, future uh, employees of Grant Thornton to check out. Um, I know that you guys have got a, um, a great apprenticeship scheme, and I'm sure that many people would want to check that out. So, um, yeah, I'll put links in the show notes to um, those fascinating articles. Another thing that's been in the news uh, over the past couple of years, but uh, maybe it's building up a bit of momentum now, um, crypto and NFTs and all those kind of things. So I wanted to ask, how can intangible property such as stolen crypto and NFTs be traced? Because I, I, I don't find myself in a situation where I'm sure your listeners and readers know far more about this than I do. Uh, we know a lot about crypto. Um, fortunately, I have people who are experts all around me. But, but broadly speaking, in relation to obviously my side uh, of the business, which is which is in tracing and recovering assets, uh, stolen assets or whatever, the one interesting thing, there was a perception of crypto being sort of illicit currencies and, uh, and being used um, by the great and the bad, so to speak, which there's nothing truth about. Um, but often what isn't really picked up is, of course, the data transferred to transferred to assets is all held with a blockchain database. And with the right um, sort of specialist software, you can map these trades quite in quite detail, sort of just as, just as we would in the old days with, shall we say, bank statements, but without the need to actually get the bank statements because the, the information is there on the database. So as long as you've got the index, you can actually properly map what's happening. So combining that with intelligence from other sources um, and lots of sort of investigatory work, um, you can then link those trades back into sort of real sort of live world organisations. Uh, and so it, it, um, it, it's a great example from where how there's an involvement, and there's, you know, I've seen lots of involvement. All your listeners will, will will see in their own careers, you know, matters evolve constantly, and because the way in which you, you you run your investigation techniques need to evolve to keep up with that, and I think um, it, it actually provides, interestingly, once you get into the blockchain, it provides you with quite a good way of getting very detailed information perhaps in a less frustrating way than the old-fashioned bank statement process did, because that used to take quite a long time. And, um, and you have layers and layers of statements, and you get one set of statements, and you realise further transactions, and you need more more statements. Whereas now, once you're in the blockchain in the database, you've got everything you need. It, 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 you go from in to end, exit, and then you have to go for the exits. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it's a fascinating area. It will continue to be in the news. Uh, it will continue to be developed, and... Um, uh, and I think it's something that, um, you know, certainly we have massive investment in and, and we'll need to do so because it's going to be here some time on that side. Thank you very much for giving your insight onto that. 
I'd like to take a moment to speak about the University of Law, which is the university I decided to study my LPC at. The University of Law is the sponsor of this podcast and makes it possible for us to continue bringing these episodes to you. So we really appreciate you supporting us by supporting our sponsors. What really sets the University of Law apart from other universities is its belief in training students for the real world from the moment they accept a place. The University of Law's experienced career service and award-winning pro bono clinics offer students the chance to get real-life legal experience which can boost employability. They offer a range of undergraduate and postgraduate legal training and master's degrees designed by qualified experts to help students excel at any stage of their career. Their courses are employment focused, honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. Part-time and online study options are also available on many of their courses to help students work and study at the same time. If you'd like to find out more about the courses on offer, please click the link in the description box of the podcast. Going now on to um, questions that uh, involve law firms and barristers and how Grant Thornton, you know, works with their other legal practitioners. Um, I wondered if you could please explain uh, how insolvency and asset recovery practitioners work together with solicitors and all barristers, um, how do they complement each other's practices? Well, that's a good question. It, um, it, 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 at its heart, I think it also goes back to why I started the consensus insolvency business sort of 20 years ago. I think it, I obviously, from my training, was more comfortable, back to my imposter syndrome, more comfortable working with lawyers, um, you know, and, and also I think differentiating myself in that way, um, uh, then all my colleagues are more comfortable playing themselves into accounting soft, you know, spreadsheets and, and whatever. And, and, and when we do contentious insolvency, by its definition, it's contentious. Um, it often involves litigation. Um, we talk about what is uh, what an insolvency practitioner is. An insolvency practitioner, if you go back, to, bed, go back to, 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 to what the basics are of an insolvency practitioner, his or her job is to um, collect in the assets of the company um, and to identify the creditors and dispute those assets. Now, under the first heading of collecting the assets of the company, there will be assets which would be normal chattel assets, crypto assets, um, but also there'll be claims. They'll be identifying whether or not people have done things wrong. And if they've done things wrong, they could be a claim. They could be claiming against the perpetrators, they could be claiming against the advisors, but they can often be, in certain types of case, they can often be the biggest asset the company's got. Now, in order to facilitate those those aims of getting in the assets, identifying the creditors, insolvency practitioners are given very, very substantial powers. So we have the powers to, to get third parties to deliver up assets, to deliver up documents, and we have the power to examine people um, if we think there's right information that we'd like to know. And there is no, there is no sort of um, um, right against self-incrimination or anything like that when you're being interviewed by an insolvency practitioner. You either tell them, or potentially you run the risk of going to prison. So it's quite, it, it's for those of your um, sort of readers, listeners who are um, budding litigators. You suddenly think, aha, a light bulb goes on, and you realise this is a really powerful tool for litigation because you're very familiar about disclosure. In my investigation, I get disclosure before I decide to bring a claim. So that then you start to think, well, okay, I can now start to understand why insolvency as a process is a really interesting process to assist in asset recovery, to, to how you actually can, can basically, if, you're, if you have an insolvency practitioner and something has gone wrong, you can get in all the documentation um, you can speak to all the people. You can take down their written, you know, their written evidence, and you can evaluate it before you decide who you're going to bring claims against. So, in that respect, it's a really powerful tool. But by definition, when we talk about you can get information, of course, I can, you know, write to you and say, please give it to Stephanie, and 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 my send is, or more likely, you'll say no, or if you're a professional body, you'll say get a court order and whatever. So, even from the off, there is always the role to work very closely with our lawyers. Because we need to make applications to the court, uh, and, and, and um, so in all our cases, literally in all our cases, we will work very closely with lawyers 
they're part of the team. Um, we will sit and, and, and certainly when you start to get from what is a straightforward case within the UK to multi-jurisdictional cases where you have to worry about if I'm making an application in the UK, am I going to affect, affect what I can do in the Bahamas or whatever? You've got to be in a situation where you work across a multi-jurisdictional team so you can talk through what is the best way of getting from A to B to C to D and how we should do that and then work very collaboratively together in order to get to the best outcome. Um, so part of what I really enjoy about this area is the fact that we have very, very close relationships um, with, um, with again, our, our equivalents. I mean, as a, as a profession, we should know the insolvency law. I should know insolvency law inside out from that point of view. Um, I don't need to be advised on the insolvency law, um, but lawyers provide very, very valuable input into how we go into the structures, how we then we, we complement the, the, the strategy to, to get information, to review the information, to agree next steps, uh, but also how we then coordinate, how we do things, in my case, on a sort of multi-jurisdictional basis. So it is, it, it's it, it's a hand-in-hand. Hand. You know, I, I will often speak daily to lawyers I have working on my cases, because it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, you know, it, it, it's not a situation where you ask them to do something, they do it, they come back, and they don't speak to them for three months. It's very much um, a sort of hand-in-glove type relationship. Yeah, you can really see that. I think you've explained that really nicely. And I think that you can see from what you've just said how important communication skills are. Um, And as you said as well, um, being able to collaborate and work as a team. So, um, yeah, I think that um, I think it's a really interesting career, you know. Being involved in those kind of cases and speaking to so many different legal professionals and working with the clients that you do, it seems to be really varied and never a dull moment or never a dull person to speak to um you you did uh, as well mention offshore uh cases and jurisdictions and which leads quite nicely into my next question please can you explain what your role as uh offshore delivery leader involves because you have like three roles in one i'm just wondering as well where you find the time to do all of this stuff well, offshore delivery leader for me, good question, and I'm sure the people in offshore will be very pleased to hear the answer as well. But um, I, I set out, I suppose I'll, I'll start my explanation by giving a bit of a differentiation piece as to how Grand Thornton is slightly different to our competitors. We talked before about the fact that um, the way in which accounting practices are usually structured, global, global accounting practices structured, is that um, each country will be a separate firm. So whilst they, whilst Grant Thornton operate under one central brand, it looks exactly the same, it'll feel exactly the same. Grant Thornton France is a different firm to Grant Thornton UK. It's a different partnership. It's a different legal entity. And um, um, and, and the asset recovery business, from my point of view, is a global business uh, um, because we 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 go into multiple jurisdictions. Now, strategically important to what I do are the offshore centres, and the reason they're really important. Is when people take things and they take them to weird and wonderful places, often the ownership of those things will be in the offshore centres. The reason for that, and people think the reason for that is the lack of transparency, all that sort of thing. It's not just that. The reason for that is the fact that actually the rule of law in those places is pretty well established. And people don't take things to places where they can't control. They like to be able to control them, you know, and, and simply, and that really helps us. We're trying to recover them. We need to be able to be. We need to have the sort of expertise necessary in the key offshore centres. And so, my role as offshore delivery leader is to ensure that we a properly collaborate across all the offshores, that we are aware of the experience we have or we need in particular places, and make sure we put in those places. To encourage and to make sure that our people get experience across multiple centres, um, and in that way we sort of mirror, to law firms, we mirror the likes of Harneys and the other offshore law firms. In that way, we try and get as much experience across offshores as we can. But also, which is my particular thing, also to try and keep an eye on where we ought to be, what's the next thing, 
And, and you, what you find is, is um, certain cultures, certain countries or whatever will tend to use certain offshore centres. So, so an offshore centre has been really popular in a certain sort of transactions. And I'm just, for instance, if you're looking at a Russian structure, it will probably involve Cyprus. It may involve the BBI, etc. Um, making sure that you are strong in the areas where um, there is going to be work in the future is as important as being strong in the areas where you're currently really busy. So that's also part of that process. But broadly speaking, in summary, I guess, ensuring we've got great coordination, collaboration across the piece, ensuring that we work as an offshore business across to make sure that we're, we're building up that sort of best foot forward in anything that we do and making sure we're using the right people in the right places um, and basically spending time in the offshores. So I have a I have a job which requires me to be in the Caribbean at least six weeks a year. Um, you know, Far East probably two or three weeks a year. You know, it's a tough job but somebody's got to do it. I'm very, very, very jealous of you. Um, <laughs> extremely jealous. <laughs> So is that how you would say you, um, as an offshore delivery leader as well, you win and retain business by, you know, making sure that you are doing your uh, research into knowing where to set up and um, nurturing those relationships with with, uh, with the clients out there? Yeah, I, th- I think it's um, there, are, there are different strategies to adopt. Uh, some strategies relate to making sure you've got effectively a nameplate somewhere, and that's not one of our strategies. What we're very keen on our attitude is, is, is to make sure that we have the right people in those places. So we may sanction investment in centres to make sure that we've got uh, the right people uh, you know, uh, across the business. So if you look at say, an asset recovery point of view, if you look at awards and what's picked up, we probably have the most breadth of, of people recognised in all in all the in, in all the periodicals because of the fact we have for some time seen the importance of having the best people in Kenya, the best people in the BPI. You know, we're just about to sort of make further investments at one moment. And, and it's a constant you, know, you, you you have to make sure you're constantly investing in that. So I think it's, it's an area which we see is very important. I would love our people, if you've got anybody who wants a career in insolvency and wants to spend you know, half their career in an offshore place and half their career in another offshore place, you know, come and join. It's a, you know, I, 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 you know, me of the future will be somebody who's worked in two or three of our offshore centres. It is that important to understand how they work, how they operate, um, and, and I think it's pretty key. And I would say, I mean, I, you know, I, I I know a number of the offshore law firms very well, and, I, and I'm very happy to acknowledge that I've sort of stolen my strategy, if you like, by seeing how well they operate across multi-jurisdictional, you know, uh, uh, problems. Um, and, and that's what I've tried to, since I've been enrolled for the last five, six years, that's what I've tried to emulate to get the businesses working much better as a sort of collaborative unit, as opposed to necessarily having a business in Vida or a business in Cayman or a business in Cyprus or a business in Singapore and things like that. So that's been that, 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 that's where I sort of perceive my role as offshore leader to be. Well, Kevin, I have no doubt that we have many budding insolvency practitioners listening, many people who would love to spend their um, time in an offshore jurisdiction, um, and I'm sure many excellent candidates. So watch this space. I'm sure that you'll have many of those people applying to you. <laughs> <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, so I was wondering if you could just uh, briefly explain Grant Thornton's involvement in the Paolo Maluf investigation that has an offshore aspect of it. Well, it is offshore. <laughs> yeah, and and it's, you pick what I was involved with. Very good. Um, yeah, Paolo Malufe. So who's Paolo Malufe? Paolo Malufe was the mayor of Sao Paulo. And um, Sao Paulo, one of the principal uh, industrial cities in, in Brazil. And um, background really, Paolo Malufi was the mayor, and it's not a funny story really, because Paolo was mayor for, for, for two, for two uh, terms of office. And in his second term of office, his running slogan for getting election um, 
was in Portuguese, and I won't try and say it in Portuguese, but in Portuguese, as running slowly was, I may take things, but I get things done. And he got re-elected. And Palmolive takes things. And um, and after after a while, the municipality of Sao Paulo um, went through the process and of doing investigations, and actually through a quite I'll jump forward 14 or 15 years now. Uh, we're able to secure judgments against um, Alan Maloof in relation to corruption. Uh, and these judgments were, 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 were finalised in Jersey courts. Um, I thought he was wise in Jersey courts, but they were in the Jersey courts, so they were in about 2016. Now, what Alan Maloof was going to doing was doing very large builds. Um, so he did a lot of industrial, a, a lot of uh, infrastructure development, things like that. And and, and the, um, the the judgment against him ended up being about thirty million dollars, ten million plus interest and cost. So it, it was such a long time ago; the interest was quite large. Um, but the thing you have to re- remember is that related to a whistleblower that um, that, that basically provided details. I think about five weeks of transactions, and so that related to five weeks of transactions in a project which lasted four years. So, so you can you can start to speculate exactly what what went out to the project. So eventually, the, um, the Brazilians were able to successfully get some sort of judgments about Paulo, a very colourful character in in Sao Paulo, and continues to be so actually. Um, and um, um, and then they have this sort of thing where and it's quite interesting. We talked earlier about how insolvency is a great tool for investigation, but they had the situation where they tried through their Usual processes to to enforce those judgments, and uh, and after about five years, um, managed to get something back, but not not very much. So what we did was we we, we met up with the municipality, and there was structures. Here's back to the point I talked about the importance of the offshores. There were structures used in the BDI to control the money flows that left Brazil, left Brazilian cash, it went through to the US, it went from the US across to Channel Islands, it went into unit trusts in Channel Islands, and then, interestingly, it was all reinvested into a vehicle in Brazil, um, which was the family-owned uh, vehicle in Brazil. And um, and and the the owner of those accounts, that facilitated those transfers, the free BVI company, and what we were able to do was um, the... Um, the municipality used the debt it had from judgment to appointed under the BDI company. We were then able, through excuse, good idea, sort of bit of a snapshot of these cases, how they work, and covering, I'll be covering about six years of work in about three minutes. But um, we were able to get recognition in the US, to get disclosure in the US, working with US lawyers, working with BDI lawyers, working with uh, UK lawyers, working with Jersey lawyers, working with Brazilian lawyers. Uh, Swiss lawyers, we got recognition in Jersey, we were able to collapse the unit trust, we got control of the underlying shares, um, we brought proceedings against the various family members in various jurisdictions. And um, it's one of those great stories with a good ending in a way, because um, having finally got control of the underlying shares within the companies, um, we were able to put people on the boards in Brazil. Um, which caused mischief, of course, um, and um, and therefore, uh, you know, uh, we were able to uh, pursue debt claims that we had as well in Brazil, um, and it, this all came to a nice conclusion um, about right to be completed ten days ago. So it's quite um, it's quite um, uh, newsworthy at the moment. Hot off the press. Hot off the press. Yeah, hot off the press. But uh, certainly, it's in the press in, in, in Brazil. If you uh, if you search in Portuguese, it'll come up. <laughs> but um, but no, we were able to, to do a completion where we sold out our interests. And we sold out our interests. And a good idea about how insolvency works. We sold out our interests to a very, very well known Latin American investment bank. Um, uh, and, um, and they wanted to buy this company because they saw the potential of this company, because it was sort of slightly toxic. Because Blue Flame in Brazil has got a bit of a toxic name. The prosecutors are after him. Everybody's after him. So they wanted to sort of release this um, this company from the toxicity that it was suffering under. Um, we only had a minority share, a very big minority share, but it's less than 50%. And so they, they wanted to do it but with the assistance and support of the family. 
Um, and so, of course, we, we were able to procure that because we had various proceedings against them in different places, which is part of this deal we've, we've, we've brought to an end. Um, and similarly, there was an issue with the prosecutor because the prosecutor in Sao Paulo also had issues against the company. So we had to procure with the prosecutor uh, um, terms whereby he's happy to release the company, which involves further payments to the prosecutor. And, um, and basically, throughout the whole, it, it took a year, um, a year of, of traveling to from Brazil to get all this sorted out. <laughs> But as a result of which, we've now been able to resolve and sell the shares, um, remove our people from the board, um, bring to an end all the proceedings we've got in various jurisdictions, um, pay off all creditor claims in full. Um, and, um, and, and, the, and the bank's very happy with the outcome. The prosecutor's very happy with the outcome. The family will be happy with the outcome because if the bank's going to make money, the family will make money. And actually, the insolvency sort of worked exactly as you wanted to do. But uh, it's a great example of a the importance of the offshores because they control the whole flows and getting pointed over there to enable it. Also, how the powers that the insolvency practitioners had unlocked something which the prosecutors couldn't do in in sort of government to government type correspondence in a fifteen year period. But also the fact that actually, in the end, it became a consensual settlement of everything. But we sort of created the environment where everybody wanted just to resolve it, including us. We we're very keen to resolve this, and it's a great outcome. So, uh, so we got home as well. Excellent. Well done. Um, the people working on this case at Grant Thornton must have like phenomenal, phenomenal job satisfaction. Um, and yeah, thank you very much for giving the student lawyers the insight, well, the scoop on. Scoop on the loop. Yes. Well, one other thing Johnny learned last week, actually, I presented on this in Toronto last week, but um, there is actually, it's a great thing if you are somebody who, uh, who, who, who comes from that ilk, so to speak. I think a great thing which, um, which Paolo got, in Brazil there is a verb now called Malufa. Right. It's actually steal public money. So, um, so, so I think it's a high echelon if you manage to get a verb name that to use. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I've alluded to a couple of the um, opportunities that Grant Thornton offered to uh, students and graduates, but I was just wondering if you would be able to um, shed a little bit more light on that. So what opportunities are there? Oh, website's a great place to get. Uh, no, I mean, I mean we're, very, we're very keen within Grant Thornton to bring people in at different periods of their career. And obviously you have what I might call the more traditional audit chartered type process where um, I think that's usually run by interviews at universities and things like that to, in order to bring people in that, in that way. But we are very keen, and I think as most our professors will be as well now, very keen to complement that process with other opportunities where you come in as either a graduate intake into specific areas of the business, certainly insolvency and forensics. We, we do that process where we bring people in as graduates with the view of then giving them training and process within those specific areas of the business. Um, and um, I I have to say, I personally don't do those interviews anymore. Uh, I have guys in my team that do those interviews. Um, but I think what I said beforehand is, is that we're looking at interesting people. We like mm-hmm. them. And I think, you know, you know um, if you sort of said to me, what is it that you look for in somebody? Um, I think you, you coined it up, Stephanie. You said you like to be nosy. That's a good start. Anybody who likes to be nosy, who is, who is actually driven by the investigation, um, is, is, is somebody we're really interested in. Anybody who's got a bit of ba- a different background is somebody we're interested in. But we have a truly global business uh, as well. I mean, Grant Thornton is a global business, but we have a global business. We have work going on in multiple jurisdictions. I do a lot of work in Brazil. I like Portuguese speakers. You know, there, there, there is there is you know a really sort of diverse area of work that we do within the insolvency and forensic and investigation business, um, and therefore people who've got different experiences are really really interesting to talk to, and people with different interests, you know, uh, really interesting to talk to as well. Well, thank you very much for sharing that and for um, validating my nosiness. I appreciate that. <laughs>
Don't forget that if you're looking for a way to remove the weight of the world from your shoulders, the therapists at BetterHelp are qualified to help you through your daily stresses. Just visit www.betterhelp.com forward slash TSL for 10% off of your first month. That's betterhelp.com forward slash TSL for 10% off of your first month. So what would you say are the top qualities of a Grant Thornton trainee? Some qualities of a Grant Thornton trainee, I suppose, in my point, I would say they would have to be uh, committed and enthusiastic, um, happy to be involved, want to share, you know, want to, want to participate, uh, want to have an opinion. When we when we look at investigations and too often we can say what what the roles those people do when when they come into business they they are part of the fundamental part of investigations they're looking at the core material they're going through it they need to be questioning you know they they need to have a sort of mindset where they question and um, you know I think people in that sort of area have a thirst for knowledge anyway so the people naturally are that, are that way but that's the sort of things that we really look for um, and um, and yeah I think I think to be excited by the sort of things we do um, you know somebody said to me when I joined Insolvency and of course I sort of I think I'm not sure I should use it in phrase but I blagged my way in um, because of course I had to get a job and I just put it on, I thought I was going to go to law and, and, and he said one of the things he said to me was the good thing about insolvency is you sort of learn something new every day and um, and I can honestly say 30 years later uh, that is something that is absolutely true in a way I never thought it would be when I had that chat you know I thought I knew there was all there was to know about insolvency I just qualified and did my law study finals so, um, but, but they're absolutely right. Is it, is this a profession? If, if you want a, a life whereby it's quite routine, you sort of know what you're going to do each moment of every day, insolvency is not really the place to be. If you want something where you are constantly challenged and stimulated and actually are pushing your boundaries on quite a regular basis, insolvency is a great place to be. How exciting. And thank you for sharing that. Um, so we're approaching the end of the interview now. Uh, so I just want to ask, do you have any final words of wisdom for us? Final words of wisdom for your, your readers? Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, I think I've that's what I've said before, I think. In relation to, it's quite strange, because when you get to the stage, I've been in this business 30 years, I've been in business for 30 years, I've been in this position in Grand Thornton. You know, how would I do what I did again differently? And I, if I'd have been my sort of I, I would say I'd have been more strategic. I'd have had more ambition in relation to where I wanted to go. I'd have thought about where I needed to get to and tried to shape the processes to enable me to get there, as, a, as opposed to stumbling through sort of one, one job to the next or one role to the next. Having said that, I then go back and say, from my own point of view, it, it took that time for me to identify the areas of my strengths, which I now are able to lean to. If you see what I mean, to, to, to ensure. So I think in relation to advice to people at the start of their career, having the goals, and I mean, we talked about this before, the, the discipline of people coming to profession now is so much stronger than it was when I started. You know, I was very, very ill-disciplined. Um, but, but being able to sort of interpret that into having goals structured and being able to sort of together plans of what we're trying to achieve or whatever will certainly help in relation to guide through progression the way that I do because I enjoy the moment in the nicest possible way but um, but then again I'd certainly enjoy the moments I've, I've, I've got you know and I, I guess my second strand of it I snap on your brother what I didn't do is I would really really take the opportunities to get a broad branch of experience in whatever you do, if you have the opportunity to work in a different jurisdiction, I would grab it with both hands. And I think that's probably my, my, my least piece. Excellent. Thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, I'm a bit like you in terms of your first piece of advice, um, uh, words of wisdom. So I started off life as a hairdresser and it's taken me 10 years to get to the point in my career where um, I can see myself having a long career into, you know, retirement age. 
Um, and when I look back, sometimes I think, oh, what would have happened if I just went from school to university to, um, you know, training contract? But um, as you were saying um, in the beginning of the interview, taking that linear approach doesn't kind of like offer anything else. So, again, looking back, I can see how all these different experiences through my various careers up to this point have made me the person I am today so although I do look back sometimes as I said and think um having a goal with intentions um a very linear approach would have got me there quicker um I did have a goal of being successful and made kind of like the right uh choices to get me there so um yeah I think that we're quite similar in that um, that respect well, I think it's good. And I think I guess what I would say with that is that and, and the industry is such that we should encourage this. You should be proud of your heritage. Of being yeah. You should. And, and it's quite interesting. One of the quiz questions often comes up in, uh, in, in, in Grand Thornton is, you know, which of the partners used to be a bouncer? And that was, that was me. Um, and actually, um, it, it, you know, in a way, I look back at that. I learned a lot about dealing with people. And hairdresser is a great example you, 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 you learn a lot about relationship building how to manage relationships how to keep you know all those sorts of things and those are people's skills and, and that's the point of making actually you might think that what makes you a great lawyer is because you've read the book but actually it's the people skills it's managing the people it's been able to read the room all those sorts of things the things you don't get taught necessarily but actually become really really important in relation to how you manage your own your, your own position and the people you work with and I think that and I think things like that it's interesting now because that sort of background from my point of view would make me more interested because it means that somebody's got something a bit wider absolutely uh, 20 years ago you would never mention that yeah <laughs> yeah requires. absolutely well thank you very much for sharing that I think that would be a great um great comfort to many of the people listening um and thank you very much for your time spending with us i know that you're a very busy person and um thank you for all the advice that you've given it's, i've had a great hour chatting with you that's been fun thank you stephanie thank you for inviting me on <laughs> and thank you to everybody for tuning in to another episode of the student Away podcast and we'll see you back again here next time To hear more of the Student Lawyers podcast, hit the subscribe button and leave us a star rating and review. If you would like to join the Student Lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com.